This is ACC men's basketball official Roger Ayers. Thanks for listening to the Crown Refs podcast episode 100 tonight. Serve the game. Thanks for listening to the audio experience for basketball officials. This is the 100th episode of the Crown Refs podcast, and it's only right that we bring in a heavy hitter for this one. So my next guest is Mr. Roger Ayers, who is a Final Four official from Roanoke, Virginia. This episode is a a communications masterclass for referees. There's over 90 minutes of insight and tips from one of the best college officials in America. I think this is going to help a lot of people get over that communication hurdle that continues to be a struggle for so many of us, including myself. So sit back, listen to episode 100. We hope to bring you at least 100 more in the future. Enjoy the episode. So, Roger, I'm eager to speak with you today because we're always trying to learn how to become a better communicator. Let's face it, we have a a rule in a casebook and a mechanics manual that we study the science of. We study the science of the craft and how each of us applies it, I think, is the actual art. And a major part of that art is being able to communicate effectively to all the game's participants, you know, to communicate what happened in the game right away you know, without hesitation. So I'm really looking forward to breaking down the communication aspect with you into three sections. So we can touch on responding to coaches, player management, and improving crew dynamics. So starting with coaches, from your experience, what has been some of the most beneficial tactics that have worked for you when dealing with coaches? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, Paul. Big fan of Crown Crown Refs, and you guys uh, do it the right way and uh, more more excited on my end probably than you are to get to do this. So hopefully it, uh, it helps out and, uh, and we can help somebody else out there. One, one of the things that I've tried to do early on in my career was I, I realized early on at the college basketball level, it is a coach's game. You know, I think everybody's probably heard that. Uh, at the NBA level, they say, well, it's a player's game. I'm, I'm not sure. You know, those are the best refs in the world. But at the college level, the veteran college coaches, they stay around a long time. Like just for example, in the ACC, the Jim Bayhams and Mike Shesky, the Warden Williams, the Jim, they've been around forever. They're not going anywhere. So every two to three, four years, a whole other group of players are coming in. So I learned right away, if I'm going to have a long-term career in this league or other leagues in the country, I've got to learn to get along with that head coach over there. Then I had to learn what are some tricks, what are some things that I can use to put in my, uh, my toolbox that will help me communicate with those guys. Because from the first time you go to any camp at any level, the, the guys, the observers, the staff, they'll get over to the side and tell you, guys, you got to communicate. you got to be able to talk to coaches. Well, as a younger ref, I didn't know what that meant. Like talking to, you know, a high school coach or an AAU coach is not like talking to Mike Krzyzewski. Right. You know, the, the verbiage you used back then, you know, it doesn't work anymore. So I had to, obviously had to bring, you know, get a hold of some veterans and use some tricks they use. But some of the things I used when I was new, a newer ref, it's the easiest trick, and every ref at every level can do this. I would read coaches' bios, like before the game, especially if I didn't know them, I, if I'd never had them before. Or I would read a bio, and, for example, it would say something like, uh, I'll throw an example out. The first time I ever had Scott Drew at Baylor, I'd never had Scott Drew before. This is 10, 12 years ago or whatever. But I read his bio, and one of the things it said was, you know, his family, his coach, and all, but his biggest hobby was bass fishing. 
Well, with this kind of hair gel I use, I don't do any bass fishing. I don't put worms on a hook, but it clicked with me. I said, okay, he loves bass fishing. So early in the game, a timeout or whatever in the game, I said, hey, coach, you know, love coming to Baylor, man. I actually was checking out some of the places you could do some fishing around here, and he just snapped. He went, you fish? I said, oh, man, back in Virginia, I love fishing. You know, love bass fishing. So it kind of took him away from the game just a little bit, just that little tidbit. Now, did it help me with him on some tough calls? Maybe, maybe not. But at least I've taken the time the day before to get a little history on him. Same thing I would do with the other coach, just trying to pick out little things, especially if you go into this upcoming season and there's a new assistant coach hired on Coach X's staff. But what I would do is go to that school's website, read his bio. Where is he from? Where did he come from? Uh, what are some hobbies? What are some things he likes? So in warm-ups, I can get to him. Say, hey, Coach, welcome to this league. We're glad to have you. I know you're a big fan of U2 music or you're a big fan of whatever. You know, whatever I can do to kind of make him feel comfortable. Start a relationship before the game even starts. Yeah. These are all little things I do. The next tidbit I use is when I go to shake a coach's hand, like most of us go to shake a coach's hand, hey, Coach, good to see you, blah, 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 and go to the next guy. But if it's a coach you've never had before, and he's a so-called big-time coach, or whether it's a high school big-time coach and you're a little nervous. Paul, one of the tips I use is when I go to shake someone's hand, I never say, I'm Roger Ayers, nice to meet you, you know, I'll work hard for you. Those are all given. How I start my relationship with that coach is, Coach, great to see you again. Always a pleasure working your games. Always glad to have you, Coach. Good luck tonight. Because I'm trying to plant a seed in warm-ups. He doesn't know who I am. But in his mind, coaches are crazy. Coaches are anal. And if in his mind, he thinks, well, I don't recognize this slick-haired guy. I must have had him, though, because he said good to see me again. He must have not have screwed up too bad. I must have not lost. What am I doing in the handshake line? Planting the seed. Hmm. Trying to start before we'd even throw the ball up to kind of put him in a place. Well, you know, Maybe I do know this ref. Maybe, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I have had him before. Maybe I'll give him a chance because a lot of times coaches stare across the court before the game and go, okay, I, I know Paul, I know this guy, but I don't know this young guy over here. I'm going to go at him. But if you can kind of plant that seed early that you've had him before or somewhere along the way, I, I think that, that that really helps. The second part I do is early in the game, first media timeout, I try to position myself outside that coach's huddle that I've never had before, that I'm still trying to plant some seeds with if we've screwed up in the first four minutes, I'm probably already in trouble. Some of the tips I use is when they come out of that first huddle, I try to start some communication right there. Coach, are we good? Everything okay out here? Anything you want to talk to me about? Anything you want me to look for? Because probably the first four to five minutes of the game, he's just filling out his team and what's going on. He hasn't really got into the officiating yet. Well, if I can start getting a few browning points right then, well, at least this guy will talk to him. At least this ref come over and said something. So when there is a tough play, maybe in his knee-jerk reaction, he doesn't come at me so hard. He may still come at me, but at least he can say, well, at least this been talking to me. I'm sure people that are going to see this podcast have seen games on TV, and yourself and myself included, I watch games, and they'll be the biggest train wreck in America under the basket. That coach will hop up off the bench, start down the baseline, and see who's officiating the play. More times than not, if he has a relationship with that guy, if he trusts that official, if he has communication with that ref, more times than not, the coach is like, okay, guys, get back on defense. Show your hands. 
just the opposite. Yeah. If he said no relationship with that guy, doesn't know you, you've been a jerk from the time you shook his hand, you were ice cold, you blew him off, he had questions early, you ignored him, you're in for a long night. Anything you can do to reel that coach in, because he's already uptight about the game. He's dealing with 18, 19, 20-year-old kids. He's dealing with alumni. He's dealing with ADs, media, presidents. And then here come three hot shots and me with the slick back hair. I do anything, everything I can to calm him down. So you know, those are some of the tips I use. And then think back to season football. If you've seen any of my games, a player gets hurt. The coach comes out on the floor and he goes to take the player for court. One of the things most officials do is, okay, coach, I got to have a sub in 20 seconds. Right. Right. Let's go. I need, let's play. I'm just the opposite. This is the verbiage I use. Coach, take all the time you need. You know, it, it's okay. They're not going to take an abundant amount of time, but coach, whatever you need, take your time. You, you need anything? Can I get you? Do you need a team doctor for me visiting the locker room? Whatever I can do. What I can do to just plant seeds in the back of that mind of his is I use it. So there's some some things I used to start. Just that's just to start the game. We haven't even really got going in the game yet, and I've already started some communication with it. But I'll start to read bios, get as much information as you can about that coach. So when you go to camp and they see you got to learn how to talk to coaches, we'll talk coaches like talk what coaches like, you know. And, and those are some of the things that, that I've used, and they've certainly helped me. I like how you flipped that approach, or you reversed it. You know that that critical time when a coach comes out, he sees his player injured. And I'm guilty of it too. What, what's the first thing we do? We're, we're handling our business, coach. I need a sub, but but to show that empathy in, in that moment, right? He's not going to take an hour, right? You're just kind of giving him. You're making it a little bit more comfortable for him. So, I never thought of it like that. I like um, how you're looking in bios because if you mentioned bass fishing to the Baylor coach, that you could have won him over forever now, just because you did that five minutes yeah. of of research. <laughs> Yeah. One thing I don't do enough, and I want to I wanna do it because you're inspiring me to, so start early in the game, first time out, I usually don't initiate. So you're saying go out and initiate, kind of take the temperature. How's everything going, Coach? Do you have any questions? And the reason I say that, Paul, is because early in the game, the temperature of that game is still pretty normal. You, you don't have the flu. You don't have 110-degree temperature in a game. It's still If you wait until the second charge call, that's not the time you want to go and talk to a coach and try to start a relationship. I try to start in the handshake when I take their hands, and then the first time out, the game's going relatively smooth. They don't even know you're out there yet. Well, I'm trying to plant those seeds now as coach. As the game goes on and that temperature does rise, I'm the one guy who you can talk to because a lot of coaches you talk to, they'll go, well, I can't talk to that guy. He's a jerk. You know, no communication. He won't talk to me. If what I've been told by supervisors, most coaches who call and complain after games, a lot of times it's not about what Roger or Paul called during the game, a missed travel or a blocked charge. It's, you know what your ref said to me? Or, do you know, I tried to talk to your ref all night. He ignored me. Or he big-timed me. Because they get in their head. It's like, this ref has an ego. Well, if you calm that, if you squash that early in the first media timeout, a little trick I used. A player goes in for a shot. He falls down. He gets hurt. A lot of officials to administer free throws, the lead official, before he's bounced. Okay, guys, two shots. Let's go. Another little trick I use. Walk up to that free throw shooter. Wipe the ball off with your hand. Wipe it on your – you know, take your time. Tell me when you're ready. And 
I'm doing that for the player, but I'm also doing it for one other person in that arena. I want that head coach to see this ref's human. Yeah. You know, my guy just got banged in the head. He's staying in the game, but instead of this ref just bouncing the ball saying, we got to play, he's in a hurry to catch a play. I'm just the opposite. Take all the time you need. I'll have a ball boy come out, wipe this wet spot up on the floor just to buy him some time. Coaches get it. They know what I'm doing. It's, you have to be aware of what's going on in the game. And these are all little tips that you can use to build that relationship with coach over time, over years. And the next time they see you, they'll go, you know what? I, I like this guy right here. They're not going to remember I missed travel so much because they're going to remember how you treat him. It's like anyone else you meet in life. You meet someone on the streets tonight and they treat you like a human being. And the next time you, you see them, you're like, wow, what, what, a, what a nice guy this was. But if they treat you like a jerk, you see them coming down the street, what do you do? You duck it in their Starbucks. You, know, you don't want to talk to them. So these are just some things I've used over years and, and it's been a tremendous help to me. It, it allows you, when you do misplace, to be able to go have a civil conversation with the coach and, and get and get your uh, your point across, I guess. Right. I love it. I love it. Definitely some savviness out of you, these, these little, little things. And a lot of the little things make the biggest difference. Are there any specific situations or encounters maybe in the last couple of years that you've had with a coach that might help bring value to the audience? Yeah, one of the things I've learned now is, is I'm old. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the veteran refs. Is any, any level, when I first started high school at the JV level, there were always veteran refs, and I always noticed how the coaches would always flock to them no matter what they called and scream at me. And then as I, when I, I slowly move up into Division three, Division two, Division one, and now get a, a really good schedule and we're blessed to get it. And I've learned over time when I first started, I was the one always taking the heat. And I would say, well, this veteran, the play happened 94 feet away from me. I'm nowhere near the play right in front of the veteran, but I'm getting yelled at. So what I had to learn early as I went along is now I want to be known not, not only as a really good ref, I want to be known as kind of a protector of new refs that are coming on. Because coaches now at all levels, they're going to work the young guy. Yeah. So I want to try to diffuse those situations. And now in the ACC and the Big 12, the Big East, those veteran coaches, they know the refs have been around a while and they know the, the newer guys. One of the things I've tried to do the past couple of years more and more uh, is – when a younger guy makes a tough call, you know, I, I'm verbalizing out loud, especially if I'm big side. Hey, that's a great call, Paul. Great pickup, Paul. I wish I'd have had the whistle, Paul. I may not even see the play, but I'm trying to, once again, plant some seeds here so the coach, he may trust me more than he trusts a guy he's never seen before. And he's going, well, I think the ref missed it, but if Roger says he got it right, he must have got it right. In, in reality, between you and me and this doesn't go any further. Maybe I didn't even see the play, but as far as protecting my partner, you know, being someone guys want to work with, and I've learned over the past few years dealing with coaches is, coach, if you'll just give them a chance. You know, when early on in my career, I'll be honest, I was just trying to survive. I was just trying to get my plays right because the veterans would say, look, your goal tonight is just wrap that five-foot circle around you and nothing else. And that, that's all fine and dandy until you walk out of the locker room and the bright lights are on and plays happen you have to make decisions on. Uh, but over the past few years, I've learned maybe is I've gotten more experience and, and learned more dealing with coaches. I've learned if those two coaches will buy my act, if they will trust me, if they will respect me, notice I didn't say like me. I, I, I don't, I'm not going to 
if they'll respect me and trust me, I can get them through a game. And it is chaos. It's two hours of chaos. And it's how you manage those situations. Every single game call is different. Every situation is different. But recall of things you've had in the past sometimes, and I've used verbiage that didn't work, that set up an explosion. And I'm like, take that out of your, your repertoire. Which one should we take out? And I want to uh, start the conversation first. Running my, if a coach is upset, I've learned over the years, let them vent first. Let them say what they're going to say. Because a lot of times what I'm – Maybe I'm ticked off about is nothing what he even wants to talk. It's something totally different. So I'm going to him ticked off. And I've learned to really watch my body language over the years. Don't go out and charge. Don't charge them. Don't go out and hard. They're the show. The players, coaches are the show. It's not the officials. You know, you've heard this. And your listeners have heard this. You, you want to do a game and the next day people go, who ref that game, Paul? I don't even remember who ref that. Yeah. You don't want to beat the guy that's the antagonistic guy. So I learned over the year. At first, I was like, I was quick to tee up people. I was quick to go out and hard. I wanted to show not only the veteran refs on the staff that I wasn't scared or intimidated, but I wanted to show them that I belong out here. And sometimes I've learned over the years there's good technical fouls and bad technical fouls. And now I call very few technical fouls. If I call a technical foul, it's certainly earned. And usually they don't even call the league office. It's like, you know, I did this. I had to be teed up. But I can count on one hand the tees I call during the season. I very rarely call technical fouls. And that's certainly dropped over time. Now, if they have to respect you to know that you, you have that have that in your repertoire. You can call a technical foul if you have to. But the guys who do college basketball and say, well, I called 100 technical fouls last year. I don't think they're going to be around very long. I, I just think if you have some communication skills, some people skills, some human skills, and – and you can talk to people, I, I think you can go a lot further and appreciate your low Your low technical foul count definitely speaks to your communication skills and the ability to manage the game in, in those intense moments. Anything else you want to talk about, coaches, before we move on to players? Yeah, yeah. One, one big thing Paul, I want to talk about, we kind of touched on earlier about, especially newer reps, whether it's high school, AAU, rec ball, I'm not sure about NBA, but I'm sure new refs struggle there as well. But college officials coming into a college league, not knowing what to say. Because you paid all this money over the years of going to camp, and I need to do this, I need to do that, and you need to talk to coaches more and don't welcome coaches. Here are some verbiages, some language that I use. You know, it's a crowded gym, so, and most nights I can't hear what the coaches are saying. But I will give them something, especially during a live ball, if I can, Coach, I hear you. Coach, you make a good point. Coach, I'm listening to you. Coach, I'll take a look at it. And, and, and sometimes and a lot of officials don't want to say, Coach, you're right. I missed the play. Sometimes that would diffuse situations. I was listening to your podcast last week uh, with the head coach from the uh, Seattle Storm, and he mentioned on there, if you remember in, in that podcast, he said, if an official – I don't think I've ever had an official come to me and say, Coach, I missed the play. He said, it instantly calms me down. And I thought when I listened to that podcast, I thought, well, what's wrong with saying if 10,000 people in the arena know it, your partners know it, all your buddies at home are texting going, did you just see that play airs messed up? Why not own it and move on from it? Then have, if the guys who tend not to want to admit mistakes during games have to deal with it the next timeout, the next dead ball, because the coach just won't let it go. But – a lot of times my partners will go, Roger, what was that coach yelling about? I say, I have, I have no idea. I couldn't hear it. 
but at least gave him, and he thought I could hear him, I, I at least gave him some communication. It's like anything else in life. If, if you and I meet, and I'm looking at you in the eye talking to you, and you turn your back to me and ignore me, that's a huge turnoff. Well, if a coach is right here on a timeout asking me a question, and I just stand stone-faced looking straight ahead, that's not going to help the situation. You know, if anything, it antagonizing even more to make it even worse. And a lot of times, all I am trying to do as an official is be the best I can for those two hours. Get as many plays as I can get right. Work a perfect game, which no one has ever done. You know, I, I would love to say if I ever do that, I'm going to retire. And the hair gel companies will be upset because I won't use it much anymore. But I'm still striving for that. Well, part of getting through that game is dealing with coaches. You know, and, and if if this wants to be antagonistic all night, it's a much harder two hours or 40 minutes for me than it is if I can at least halfway get along with him. Just like he's trying to work me, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm trying to work him as well. Yeah, I'm trying to let him know I'm a human being out here, too. I have a job to do. You have a tremendously hard job as well. We've got to work together here. And one thing I've learned over, over the years is, is being around it as long as I have is you treat that guy like a jerk 10 years ago and you have him 10 years later, guess what? They don't forget anything. They remember that you were a jerk 10 years ago. So I've learned kill him with kindness as much as you can. And if they, the ones that want to deal with that and work with you over time, goes a lot farther. Because at the end of the day, you as an official, you have the whistle, you have the authority, you're, you're the police officer. You have to control that game. And there's parameters you have to work the game by. And if you start to call technical fouls and throwing people out, the first thing people go is, who ref that game? I heard all hell broke loose. It got totally out of hand. In reality, you had nothing to do with it. But if you do your best with communication, I, I think you have a, a much better shot of getting through that two hours. And my big line in the ACC, we get locked in this, guys, we fooled them again. We got through it. It was a hard two hours, but I think we fooled them. You know, they let us work. We let them coach. We let the players play. We called what we had to call. We didn't have any interrupters. We didn't have any head snappers. We weren't throwing fans out. We weren't throwing coaches out. And most nights, it goes relatively smooth. And obviously, there's atypical nights when things don't go that way. But if, if, if every time you turn a TV on and, and referee A is in a game, there's chaos every night, you start to think, well, maybe it's not so much the teams or coaches. Maybe it's referee A over here. So the less we can diffuse situations, the better. That's a great question. Great answer. And just to, to summarize for the officials listening, what the most popular response from a ref to a coach, and, and you mentioned it, is just admitting you're wrong. I've heard that answer given from many coaches the last five, six, seven years. It's the undisputed number one response. I'm not saying to go, you, you can't use it very often, right? What do you get, one a game, two, one on each side, right? You get, you get, you get one a game. If you start using two. One per coach. That's... Yeah, one per coach. Absolutely. No question. Awesome. That was great. All right, so we will shift towards players now. i got a little eat, uh, lead-up paragraph, and then uh, I'll pass you the ball for an alley-oop. Let's talk about um, player communication and management. Now, on the lower levels, CYO, AAU, sometimes players can be very difficult to manage, right? Junior college ball can get very difficult. Division three, Division two, very difficult. And of course, the NBA. Notice how I skipped over Division one, and I'm not trying to compare it or say it's easy. It's just my observation. 
from afar, but I feel like Division One players mostly just go out there and play, which is great. You know, they're on a scholarship. They're fighting for playing time. They're trying to become a professional one day. It's the coaches who are most vocal. Um, so that being said, what can you say about working with the players? What has helped you uh, the most with the players? Another great question, Paul. I have a whole laundry list of things I do that I've picked up over my 20-some years in Division One basketball. When I first started, players were just like coaches. I was scared to death. Anyone who says they go from a high school level to college back to Division One level, the first time you walk into these arenas, and you're a little bit in awe. Everybody in the summer camp says, I can do it. I know I can do this. I can do this better. And guys get on their cell phones during the season and say, well, why did Roger call that? Or this is what I would have done. I would have told this player this. Or I would, mm. that player did this to me. I would have done that. Uh, it's all crap. You yeah. know, when you get up, the bright lights are on. I'm going to talk to you about the real world. Some of the things I've done over the years is I learned early on that each team has a what? Each team in America has a go-to guy. And he could be the point guard, the quarterback of the team, that even the seven-footers, they bow down to him whenever he says. It could be the big guy. And it could be. Every team has that guy. And every ref knows, you should know, going into games, the games are going to work. You, you can kind of, once again, you don't, you don't know the players' bios or team bios. Who's, who's the guy who plays in 20 minutes a game? Who are the go-to guys for each team? Here's a tremendous tip that I hope some of your, your officials can use that I use every night. I will go to the go-to guy. If I'm the U1, U2, or Coochie, whatever it is, I will make a point in those warm-ups instead of, you know, looking up into the stands, shaking hands with the media. I use that when we got the 20-minute mark is I'll make my way down to Team A's end when they're warming up, and I will pull that guy out of his routine, his whatever he's doing, free, and I'll go up, maybe pat him on the butt or put my arm in. Hey, how you been, Paul? Great to see you again, pal. Man, I saw you the other night on ESPN, man, 34. They couldn't stop you. Hey, look, let's face it. You're the best player your team has. Hmm. I'm going to keep you in a game night. I'm going to do all I can for you. If anything comes up in this game, come to me. I'm your guy, all right? You're the best player on the floor. But it doesn't end there, Paul. Hmm. I mosey my way back to midcourt or wherever I am. And if you've watched me in warm-ups, you'll see, what's Roger doing now? I'll make my way down towards the other end. You know, I've got responsibilities in warm-ups, but I can get towards midcourt and say, hey, Roger, come here, I want to talk to you a second. Well, that player comes running. It's like the ref. I say, what's up? I say, what's up, brother? How you been? Great to see you. Man, you, you're killing it this year. You know, obviously, I, I think, you, I think you, 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 you can be the MVP of the league, man. I've been watching you, man. It's good to see you again. You know, I saw you now in sports here, man. You were top 10. Hey, look, you're the leader of your team. I need you tonight, man. I, I need you. So come to me. Hmm. I'm your guy. You're the best player on the floor. Now, what I've done, game I game story. But I'm planting seeds with the leaders of both teams. Hey, I got one thinking he's the best player on the court on this end. I got one thinking he's the best player on the court on this end. I've got them both thinking, well, when it goes haywire, I got one ref I can talk to. Now, my biggest fear is they come together in midcourt and say, hey, that ref told me I was the best player out here. So, hope that never happens. But what I'm trying to do is – is try to provide a little bit of a calming effect with the players. Before the game, they look at refs as they may have just come off their back and it didn't go their way and they're ticked off or their players just always complaining. What I've tried to do is stop that before we even get to the game. These tips I'm giving you, like dealing with the coach and the handshake, these are things before the game. Well, it's even thrown up. Little tips I do. Second thing I do, 
coming out of timeouts, if you felt like the post is getting too rough and you know the All-American already has two quick fouls, instead of just standing there at your spot when they come out of timeout, you may want to go to him and say, hey, big fella, you know you got two. The third one, you're going to wind up on the bench the rest of his half. I don't want to call it, but you keep putting your knee up this guy's ass. Keep pushing him out. I, I've got no choice. If I'm talking to you in the lead position, I'm trying to help you. Show me your hands. I'm trying to prevent a third foul. Because if then if I do have to call it, it's like, you know what? I saw the ref communicate with him, and he had to do it. The other person you want to talk to, point guards. Early in the game, they can give you a lot of information. If you think it's getting too much hands, too much trash talk, go to that guy the first time when you're done with the coach. Go to him and say, hey, 12, I need your help. They, they, the big guys are talking trash in there. You, you help me, it's going to be a technical foul. I like to count on you. I want them to say, well, I've got a relationship with, with this official. The other great thing I do is on timeouts. I don't, no one on this podcast has ever called a 10-second violation on a free throw, I'm sure, from a slot position. It's never been called. I mean, we do a pretty little count, but it's never been called. But most times, if you watch, there are always guards outside that three-point arc close to the officials. So while I'm doing my count, I might say, hey, Hey, 10, 22, we good tonight? Everything okay out here? Anything I need to know about? Give me some information. We're good. They're like, they look at you like you're crazy going, this ref's talking to me? Then he's giving me information. They're like, well, this guy's not so bad. Then inside on free throws, I'm administering official. Before I bounce in the ball, that's a great time because on the low block and the next, there's the two big guys, the two post players who have been fighting, scrapping, calling in there. And if you think it's getting too, instead of being in such a hurry to bounce the ball, Go right to those two players. Guys, I've had enough. I'm trying to let you play. If you continue the road, you're going down. It's, I, I got to call fouls. I have no choice. Not only am I playing the scene with those two guys, but who else am I trying to watch that conversation? The head coaches. Because let's say we go to the other end and there's, there's a 50-50 play and I have to call foul opposed to going, you know, they're yelling. Usually they're yelling at their players saying, I just told him, I just saw him yell at you on the free throw. They're talking on the free throw about not going through the guy in the back or not putting your knee up his rear end in a post. That's why he called it. Or, guys, help me on screens. Whatever you're trying to do, that is a great time to communicate on timeouts. If you can talk players out of things, the better. And the other part about communicating with players, Paul, is I've learned, don't just verbalize things, make it personal. And what I mean by that is if you're talking to a player, hey, 10, show me your hands. 50, ease up. 20, they know they're not. But if you're just saying, down the lane, he's up in the post, players never think you're talking to them because they do nothing wrong. But if you make it personal, 50, get out of the lane. 50, get out. Yeah. And then you call three seconds on 50. Everybody's heard it. He's heard it. But who else has heard it? The head coach. Yeah. He may not like that you called it, but he's going to go, Damn, I heard him tell you get out of the lane twice. Or Jeff, I heard him tell you to show you on the screens, not too wide. It's, a, it's a obviously a legal screen. All I'm trying to do, once again, this whole thing is about planting seeds to help me when I do blow the whistle. Um, once again, I talked about earlier when the player gets hurt and he goes to the free throw line. I, I may walk up to him and say, hey, you're not back off. Take your time. I'm going to go in and get a towel and wipe the ball. You tell me when you're ready. 99 times out of 100, the player goes, thank you, Mr. Rev. Thank you little things like that. The other thing I try to do is after skirmishes on the floor, don't be in such a rush to worry about the – if it's a possession arrow type play, don't be in such a rush to look at the arrow, who's getting the ball. 
get those players separated. Get the five blue jerseys separated, the five white jerseys separated. Don't worry about the arrow. And it's also a great time to talk to players. If they've gotten a little bit easy, guys, good hustle. I got you. Great play. We're good. Come up clean, guys. Communicating, trying to calm them down. You know, once again, I tell this story all the time. If, if a kid goes in the store and he wants to steal some candy and stick it in his pocket and walk out and gets away with it, and the next time he goes to the store, he sees a cop standing there at the register. He's not going to do it because mm-hmm. there's a cop watching what he's doing. Same thing, players go a hard foul. We've all had them. Players go on a breakaway layup, and he gets fouled hard from behind. The, the official that's nearest to play needs to run in there, but don't go to the player who committed foul. Get to the player who's on the ground who's ticked off, the one who got knocked down hard. That's the guy you got to come down. Easy big fella. I got you. You're going to get two free throws. I'm going to go look at the monitor. I may throw him out. I don't want to tee you. You yeah. stay calm. You're staying in the game. You're my guy. Calm him down. The guy who committed the foul already knows he's in trouble. Right. He's not the one who's going to cause the problem. The guy who got knocked to the ground is the one that's ticked off. So these are all little things you have to think about during a game that you have to put in your game. And these are all they have to be second nature. And, and a lot of times, guys are calling fouls and just immediately going to the table report. I'm saying, whoa, whoa, slow down. Yeah, let's get these guys separated. If we, if we have two different colored jerseys tied up and, and they're jawing, we have problems. If we can get them separated, the better. So there's some tips I use dealing with players, and so far they've worked. I absolutely love it. I've been, I've been talking about giving players compliments. You know, one, players are not used to hearing from us, like sure. n- not during a, during a dead ball, right? They hear from us during live balls and, like, in gameplay is what I'm saying. So when you go up to a player before a game and you give him a compliment, you're grabbing his attention with, with, by flattering him. You know, you're building rapport by saying you've been watching his highlights. Then you deliver your message, which is going to have him, uh, you know, come to you quicker or you, you've just built that, you've established that, that relationship. Great, great point. Because I've, I've been in games when I've had a relationship with players and a guy maybe I don't know or a freshman or a kid. Uh, will come in the game and he's going to show it by that he was the big star in AAU and high school basketball and he wants to start jawing or talking trash. I've had the junior and senior year players go, Roger, I got him. Leave this ref alone. This is my guy. Away. I've known him since I was a freshman. This is my guy. Leave. I'm thinking, I didn't have to do anything. Yeah. You know, because, and then a couple years later, that same player who's now been around a while ago, how you being, Roger? Great to see you. Glad you joined my game. I haven't done, I haven't had to do any of the work. It's just because over time, because a lot of times the new family are the head cases, but if you've got relationships over the other guys, they do your dirty work for you. Can you identify um, some of the most common times where you're proactively officiating, using your voice? Like which plays stand out? I know in the post, entry passes, you know, cutters. What other plays stand out for you where you're using your voice a lot? Uh, one of the plays I use my voice, and you're probably going to laugh, and some of your officials may have never heard this before, is I use my voice on dead balls. And you may say, no, what is he talking about? Like, if I have a problem in the post with two players, and I've talked to them, and, and they're ignoring me, before I miss a free throw, I may bounce a ball in a lane and look to my two partners and go, hey, Paul, hey, Jeff, I'm done with number 25 and number 50. You, we're done with them. I'm verbalizing during dead balls. I want those two guys to know I'm done with them, but I want my two partners to know what's going on here to keep their antennas up. I want the coaches to know, hey, 
They're, they're going with these two guys. So a lot of guys talk to players in the post. I get it. And, and talking is great. Communication is great in the post until one thing. They stop listening. Mm-hmm. You know, if they will listen to you and back off, we don't want – I don't think any official on this podcast wants to go in a game saying, I had to call one of fouls. Or I had to have 50,000, 85 free throws. Because what's everybody say? The refs ruin the game. Mm-hmm. We didn't ruin the game. We just ref the game that presented to us. But I told people, if you can go in a game early and communicate and use your voice, like I always say coming to court in the back court, no hands. Mm-hmm. Show me your hands. Give me space. You're in the post. Get out of the lane. Hey, guys, get your elbow out of his back. Don't extend it. You know, all these things I'm talking out loud, but once again, I'm using their numbers, making it verbal. Um, because if you can verbalize something and they back off and they just play basketball, your job is much easier. When you start blowing the whistle and there's balls and we're shooting free throws and coaches are complaining, players are complaining, and the worst thing you want to hear as an official is two minutes into the game is the PA guy go, and that's the point guard's third foul. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, the, that's the All-American big guy. That's just third foul. We played three minutes. Yeah. Anything you can do to prevent that, the better. Now, there are going to be games you can't. Plays present themselves, you have to call them. But if you've done everything you possibly can to keep that game under control, players under control, coaches under control, as I said, if you can, if you can do that most nights, officiating is extremely hard. I don't care if you're doing Saturday morning AAU ball or rec ball or, or doing NBA. It is tremendously hard. There are very few people in the world can do what officials do. Now, the moms and dads and the grand they all think they can. Yeah. Coaches, everybody thinks they can, but officiating is extremely hard. And, and I watch guys on TV. I watch you know, college games. I watch NBA games. I am in awe of those guys. There are some incredible refs out there who make it look so easy. Those are the guys I steal from. I, I watch and I just try to pick their brain off. Sometimes I don't even know who the official is. An NBA game, I'll watch and I'll go, I like his mechanics. I like his his body language. That's the other thing I hope we get a chance to talk about today is body language is so important. From the time you walk out with four pole, it's yeah, you need to look the part. You need to clean your form, this year, all that part, the hair, which I'm big on hair. I know that shocks the listeners, but that's all important. But how you stand even on timeouts. Like I work with guys and I'll look at them on timeouts and they're slouched down, they're bent over, they're drinking water, it's running down their chin, they look no, just the opposite. Timeouts is when a majority of people are actually looking at you because everybody's on the bench. There's nobody on the court but three refs. People are looking at you going, he didn't even look like a ref. Or look at his body length. Look at his posture. I didn't realize he was that heavy. Or I didn't, you know, all these. That's a time you want to stand like a drill sergeant. Stand, you're working. That two hours, just because the team's second timeout, mentally, and we don't take timeouts. Somebody, I try to I tell myself, Roger, someone's in this room and I watched you for the very first time. Or, Roger, remember when you went to camp and you knew the supervisor of the ACC was going to be there? How hard you worked, how hard you ran. He's watching everything you do. That's how I, how to, how I try to treat every game. And, and for the officials on this podcast that are, that are listening to this, I would tell you, don't take dead balls off. And look at, you know, look at your, how you're standing, how your body language. Do you look like um, – a professional, do you look like you belong out there? Are you, are you an athlete? Are you part of the game, or are you slouched down? Like, thank God we had a timeout. I'm huffing and puffing. Just the opposite. You know, I, a quick story I'll tell you is, you know, I got pulled over by a state trooper several years ago, and I noticed when he walked up to my car, I immediately respected him because 
the uniform, you know, the crisp hat, the way he talked to me, his voice, confident, strong. It could have been his first day on the road. But if he had walked up to me like Barney Fife, you know, his shirt tail out and he's slagger, I would not respect him. But the same with officials. If you look the part, you have a strong voice that commands respect. When you, when you use it and you talk to players and coaches, they'll respond to that respect. You know, and, and that's all part of, part of the gig. But using, using my voice, like your original question, is, is strong. But I, I do it just as much on dead ball. Even teams coming out of a timeout, I just don't stand 30 feet away and go, hey, first one, go, whatever, when it's convenient coming. No, hit that whistle hard. First one, let's go, guys. Let them know you're there. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a different voice cadence. I know Al Batista uses this all the time. I'm sure you've heard Al say this. There are different times to use your voice. You know, there, there's a calm voice when you're trying to calm someone down. There's a middle voice. And, and then there's a voice of, I'm done playing. Like a tough out-of-bounds play. If everyone in the arena sees the ball is off white and it's going to be blue ball, there's no sense to put a big show on blue. But if it's a bang-bang play that only you saw, your voice has to change. has to be stronger. has to settle. A tough block charge play that somebody's going to be ticked off on, that's not the time to be soft. That's the time to be strong. Strong whistle, strong voice, strong mechanics. And as a new official coming up, I think if you can do those, strong voice, strong mechanics, uh, strong, I think you're going to be much better off, more believability. I love it. Um, let's, let's talk about when, when a player is starting to act up, starting to complain. You're going to go address that player. Are you also going to address his head coach kind of as a courtesy, letting the head coach know that you've already had conversations with him, and I just wanted to, to let you know that, coach? Another great question, and obviously that's going to happen. Because these players, since they were five or six years old, have been told, you're the greatest player ever. You're going to be the next LeBron. You're going to be the next. But when they get to the college level, some of the things they may have gotten with in high school or, or AAU ball or the summer circuit, they're not going to get away with it in Division three, Division two, Division one, because the officiating is obviously improving and getting better. You know? And so I give them the benefit of the doubt early. Like I said, or any game. But if he wants to continue to be a jerk, the first thing as I do is I let him know, okay, I've had enough. Our conversations are over. Mm-hmm. And I do this on a dead ball. And you may say, no, why would you do this on a dead ball? First of all, live ball, we're busy. We've got a lot going on. But in my back of my mind, I'm going, you know what? Number 10 has been a jerk. He's trying to show me up, not at the level of a technical foul. Because what technical fouls need, if he's being a jerk and does something, weighs me off or costs me, that's different. I'm talking about the average Joe or any game. If he's being irritant to me, and I've tried all these tricks and I've, I've spent all this time talking to you about and none of this has worked, then I say, okay, now it's going to be he, he wants to show himself. Now I've got to show my authority. First person I'm going to tell is him, I'm done. No, I'm not talking to you anymore tonight. I've tried. And he'll be, oh, come on. Come on. No, we're done. Because I know that his truth was truly inside him. He doesn't want to talk to me. Now he's a little nervous about what I might do. Before I get to the head coach, though, and warn him, I've told him I'm done with him. There's two other people I'm going to let know. Hey, Paul and Al, I'm done with number 10 tonight. He's all yours. I'm done talking to him. You handle him. Because it puts their antennas up to know 10's been a jerk. And most solid veteran good partners are going, well, if Paul and Al are done with him, my son going, well, I'm done with him too. All done. The last person I want to get to is the head coach. Coach, you've seen what we've had to put up with. 10 is all your – either you handle him or I'm going to have to handle him. And I've even went to coach and say, look, if you take him out of the game and calm him down, I'm going to just call a technical foul. I've never – and it's very rare, but I've never had a coach come back to me and say, I'm leaving him in the game. 
most coaches, you know what they tell me? Roger, you should deal with him seven days a week. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what they say. Yeah. We've all heard it. They go, we can't control him either. And I go, well, I'm just giving you a heads up. I told him I'm done. This whole arena saw where my partners were all done with him. What do you want me to do? And I've even had coaches, believe it or not, listeners, coaches told me, go ahead, team. He won't listen to me. Go ahead and do it. Well, then the handcuffs are all free. It's like, so when you do it, it's like the, the player's not going to go run to the coach because the coach is going to be like, I told him to throw you out. You know, those are, those are little things right there that, but yeah, definitely talk to the player first so he knows. And then it's not such a big surprise that, that your partners know verbally out loud. One of the things we do a poor job, I think, especially of newer officials, is we do a poor job of communicating on the floor with each other. Players are communicating, coaches are communicating, assistant coaches are communicating, fans are communicating. Everybody's communicating during a game except us. Sometimes refs are like robots and we don't want to communicate. Well, a dead ball, nothing's happening. That's a great time to say, hey, Paul, it's getting a little rough in the post down here. Let's keep an eye on, all right? Or, hey, Paul, Tim's got, Tim's decided he wants to ref a little bit. Let, let's be aware of him. That is a great time to communicate because I may bring something to your attention you weren't even aware of. And you may say, yeah, Roger, I noticed it too. And also keep an eye on 50 over here, Roger. Great. Let me know if any information my partners can give me or I can give you. Hopefully it goes smoothly. I don't want to get surprised. But if he goes, yeah, I've been talking to 10 all night too. That even helps me more. Bro. Then we're certainly done. He hasn't listened to any of us. He doesn't get 10 warnings. I warn him. Paul warns him. Jeff warns him. The coach of warning. No. Now we got to address it. But, yeah, that, that's, that's a, a tip that hopefully all your, your listeners can use. Love it. I got to call a 30-second timeout. Go get my okay. charger, all right? Be right back. Okay. First torn ball. <laughs> All right, let's talk about um, communication with our fellow officials. What are some ways that um, we can improve that crew dynamics? Um, to be honest with you, I think over the years, it's kind of diminished. Uh, I know maybe when you were doing high school and I was doing high school 25 years ago, the JV guys always rode with the varsity ref, the old school guy who would sit in the back seat and just listen and not say anything. You know, as now as times goes on, a lot of JV guys starting out and just say, I'll meet you at the team. And the varsity guys don't want to take the JV guys because they don't want to leave an hour or a half early to get better. I learned so much riding in the backseat cars, listening to what those veteran refs would say. Uh, and even now, I've noticed that as I've moved up in, in the division one a lot more, a lot of refs now maybe don't stay at the same hotel anymore, take three different rental cars. Mm-hmm. Um, get to the games at different times. One of the things that I I try to do personally is I would love for us all to stay. And for the most part, our guys do stay in the same hotel. Let's uh, let's start that bonding. Like, first of all, let's maybe have a a light lunch or something. Just talk about if Paul has a family, where you've been, where where you're coming from, how how are things going, how's the family, Uh, how was you traveling, not even talking basketball, how's life, how how are things going, okay? Just to kind of get – Maybe a little bit of a relationship. I haven't seen you in a month, Paul. I mean, you're on TV every night, but I haven't really got to see you. I don't know what's going on in your world. Or and then maybe start talking. Man, I had I had this this team we got tonight, and I had this team two weeks ago. It didn't go well. You know, maybe uh, this coach and I had a technical foul, or, or the game didn't end well. 
and you can go, yeah, well, I had some issues with the other team. Just, just some little things. Start the conversation about the game so we can we can survive that two hours. Maybe start over lunch. And a lot of a lot of guys now don't do that anymore. I, I try to push that. I try to push right into the games together if we can, especially if we're in the same city. Let's take one part. I just think the crew dynamic, it just looks better. You're bonding, you look better. If you come in a locker room and some guys are there's egos, I get it. Like I'm gonna do my own thing, I'll see you in a locker room, but there's just something about coming to the game together. It's like for that 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 day, the league put us together. We need to work together, we need to drive together, we need to maybe have lunch together. We're we're a team for that two hours. But some of, also some of the things I do is we need John Clark used to say this all the time to us. We need more simplifiers in officiating and less complicators. In mm. in Division One level, there are complicators who make things not only difficult for coaches and players and supervisors, but they make it difficult for us. Let's face it: when you get your schedule and I get my schedule, I, we all look at two things: one, the game, what's the game, and number two, who are you with? And when you look at your partners and go, "I'm with Paul and and this guy," like you're like immediately you feel relaxed. Like I love working with him; great partner. Great guy, but it's just the opposite when you look at, wow, that's a really good game, but who am I with? And you go, oh, no. You don't be known as that jerk. Don't be known as the guy that knows everything. Be the guy that when especially newer refs are coming up, they're like, I want to work with that guy. I want to steal from that guy. I want to I pick his brain. I want to do – what did he What did he say to that coach? I want to get as much information out of I, – I can't – out of Roger Ayers on our game Saturday – so I can use them my game on Sunday. And then what I'm trying to do with the, with the newer guys who are coming up is make them feel as com- most comfortable as they can. Like, let's face it, if you have three veteran referees in, in, in a game in late February, we're not going to sit and have an hour and a half pregame. We know by that time of year the rules. We know what we're going to do. We know the coaches. We know the club. We know what we're going to do going into that game. We obviously have a pregame, but it's not going to be as in-depth maybe as it would be if it's November and it's a first-year guy in your league, you want to make him feel like he's a Final Four ref. You want to make him feel like he's an NBA Finals ref. You want to make that guy feel like he belongs. Because quite honestly, if the NBA is hiring or Division One, ACC or what, Big 12, Big whatever's hired this official, obviously they think he should be there. Well, that's not your job to make that decision. Your job is to help him get through that, mentor him a little bit for that two hours. And on the flip side, I would tell younger refs, when you come in a locker room, don't have the ego. Listen to that old guy there who's been in a lot of these wars. I know when I was Jim Burr or Timmy Higgins or Bob Donato, Eddie Corbett, you know, John Cogarty, John Cale, those guys, Brian Curzon. When I would work with those guys, I sat in the locker room and I shut up. I listened. When they wanted to talk, I took as much. The, the tips that they gave me 20 years ago, believe it or not, still work this upcoming season. I, I try to take as much as I can. When a new ref comes in the locker room, he's got his earbuds in, he's listening to music, he's too cool, he's like, I, I've arrived now, i got a fancy whistle, and, and I, I'm like, what are you doing? Immediately it's antagonistic. You want to be the guy that comes in the locker room going, help me. What can I do to get where you're at? You, you've been in this league 20 years. How have you survived 20 years of this chaos? You know, and, and – and then it's on the veterans to give back. I don't think we do as good enough job as we probably should. One of the reasons I, I like doing these podcasts, and, and obviously 
I'm a big fan of Crown Rubs is because I know this is going to go out to a lot of officials. And if it only helps one official, one tidbit I've given you today, if it helps one guy this upcoming January in a tough play or tough situation, and he can remember, I was on Crown Rubs. I remember what Roger Ayers said. I'm going to try it, how this works. Then this is all well worth it to me. But we as veteran refs need to give back more. You know, we're fortunate. You know, we get our schedule. We get our games. But there are thousands and thousands of refs that are trying to make that climb. You as one. I, I can't wait to get in the ACC one day and we're going to laugh about this. Now, you're buying dinner that night. But I'm going to say, hey, Paul, you know, remember when we had that, that how hard you were working to get there? That's the other thing I would tell refs. When you think you've reached the mountaintop, I always tell refs, go back to the day you got that phone call or that email or that text message that, hey, Paul, I'm hiring you in your first division one league. How exciting that is for you. I still remember the day in 1998 when back then there was a letter. There was no email back then or the phone. I had a letter in the mailbox and it said Atlantic Coast Conference, welcome to the league. I never forgot how I felt. I sat down on that curb and I, I had tears in my eyes. Like all the camps, all the money, all the ADL weekends, working 10 games a day. And as happy as I was, wow, I'm an ACC ref now. I wasn't an ACC ref. I was just on a roster. But I ref every game to this day. Like it's still 1998. Like that passion I feel of, of an official, no matter what game it is. When I walk in the arena, I'm like, you know what? I still have that fire that the day I got hired, I, I want to keep proving myself, proving that, that they were right to give me a chance. Like people say, Roger, I, I watched you the other night in that so-called big game, but the next night in a, a smaller league, you, you ran just as hard. Your mechanics were just the same. That's because I never changed. Every single game I work, I want that coach tonight going, wow, I see why he got the Duke Carolina game. Like he's working just as hard tonight. I see why he's in the ACC. And, he might be in a Big South tonight, but to me, that Big South game is bigger than any ACC game I got because that's a game I have tonight. If, if refs ref with that mentality, especially the newer guys, don't come in thinking I've arrived or I'm in the ACC, but I got to go to the Colonial tomorrow. You should be thankful you're going to Colonial because thousands of refs are out there going, I would give anything to go work. The other tidbit I would give young officials as they're coming up, Paul, is don't, your schedule's got, not going to be extensive your first few years now you can sit home and complain like wow I got hired in my first division one league and I got two games that's all I got what I did was when I got in the ACC I'll be I'll tell the world my first ACC calendar call you know how many games it had on it zero 1998 I was in the ACC I got the letter in August schedule comes out in October and once again letter in the mail to calendar your ACC schedule is attached November, December, January calendar, not one X. Well, I could have been ticked off or had an ego. I did just the opposite. I called the ACC office and said, just got my schedule. I'm pumped. Can you tell me where the scrimmages are at? Where are some exhibition games? Where can I go work? One year, my first year in the ACC, on a Saturday morning, I worked at James Madison University, which is almost two hours from my house at 9 a.m. I left there, drove to the University of Virginia, Worked a scrimmage at 2 o'clock. What, double? Left, left, or triple. Left there, drove back through my home in Rhode kept driving, and went to uh, Radford University and worked the big south scrimmage that night in the squad against Vermont. Did three in one day. But what happened over that time, instead of me sitting home being bitter, is I started networking. I was working with veteran guys who, what I've learned about veteran refs is they don't like doing scrimmages. 
And when I show up and they're going, you mean you want to work, kid? I'll sit over here in the bleachers and observe you. I was like, please do. Good. <laughs> I'd go work all day long. So instead of sitting home making excuses, yeah, they were using me because they were sitting in the bleachers and I was dying with sweat, but I kept working because I was picking their brain. <laughs> and then I would say, well, referee X, when's your, when's your first game at Virginia? When's your first game at Virginia Tech? Do you mind if I tag along? Can I go? Can I go sit in the locker room? And, and for my sake, they were always happy to help me because I just helped them for two hours. They'd call the office and say, yeah, that scrimmage was hard. We, we gave them all we had. We, they didn't even change clothes because I worked it for them. But they're like, we work with this young kid named Ricky. Or maybe his name's Randy, Robert, somebody. <laughs> but he, he, I think he's got a chance. You know, I, I think maybe – so younger reps on here, do what you can do. You do what you can do to be better. But back to the partnering thing is I try to make that official 10-foot tall bulletproof. I try to make him feel like he's better than he is, especially during games. I try to pump him up. Sometimes, Paul, if you make a tough call and you look at your partner and he's staring at the floor, he's staring at the ceiling, what do you think the veteran's saying? You feel, oh, gosh, he doesn't like it either. He thinks I missed the play. Sometimes something as simple as just a nod to that guy or – fist bump or call. recall or great give a thumbs up or they report a foul and they walk by you and I'll go that's a great great call big time call and in reality maybe it's not maybe at that but at that moment I need to pump that ref back up make him feel comfortable so maybe after the game I can say well, let's talk about that part let's talk about how you, but during the game I don't need his confidence swaying I need his confidence up here. And I want refs who work with me to feel like no matter what I do, Roger Ayers as a partner is going to have my back. I can trust him. I don't have to worry about him over there talking to coaches, selling me out. Because one of the things that all refs on this podcast is self-included, myself included, you make a tough call and you look over your partner is hugging the coach or, or, or talking to the coach, no ref in America likes that. Mm-hmm. I don't like it either. So I tell myself after – a newer guy, newer partner I'm working with, and he's just made a tough call. And coach like, Roger, come here. Step. No, Coach, I can hear you fine from 10 feet on a free throw and trail. Coach, I hear you fine. If he wants to verbalize something then, everybody hears it. But I'm not going to be the guy that's going to go stand right beside the coach and try to get brownie points. I've already been in the league 20 years. That young guy across the court, I need his confidence up here. And when he just had a tough call, instead of being the veteran on this podcast, looking, looking down at him or pump him up, that's a big-time call, Paul. That's an ACC call, Paul. Welcome to the league, Paul. What is, how does that make you feel? <sighs> you, it make, you're like, I can do no wrong now. Because if a ref officiates a game, and now he feels like I've got the veterans, veteran ref on this game watching my back and getting me through this, I can handle anything out here. And I've learned over the years, if I can keep you pumped up and, and ready to ref, games go much smoother. That's a great tip because in that one to two second moment where maybe the calling official doesn't feel very confident about his call, you totally reversed his psychology. You, you empowered him and kind of uplifted his spirit. And it's a game changer because I've been on, on both ends of that where an official told me that in that moment and I'm a new guy, you know, and I, I saw the effect of me delivering that message to a, to, to a younger official and it really works. So you're giving us a lot of great tips on how to be a great partner. So I really appreciate that. 
Um, that's funny. You uh, you worked three Division One scrimmages in one day. That's got to be a world record. It only makes sense that you're working 90, 95 games every year that I see on uh, on Philly refs. Well, the one thing I would say now, the games pay more than them three scrimmages I worked. I think between the three schools, I got a 6'8 subway. They didn't even biggie size it for me. But, <laughs> uh, but it was all my part of, of putting in the work. Like, no matter what anyone does in life, if you put the work in, you hopefully you're going to get paid off late. And I was looking at that was as an opportunity because I looked at my schedule. I had no games, so I could sit home and swing my ACC whistle around going, I, I, but I got no games, or I can get out and work. And, and, and that's what I, I, I tried to do. So you know, I do work a lot of games because I, I have, still have a passion. I love the game. And if I ever feel like I'm slowing down or I'm hurting the game or I think I'm losing a step, then I'll cut back. But as long as the supervisors and coaches – Trust me and respect me. Once again, I don't say like me, love me, I don't, none of that. If they respect me enough when I walk out there, even though they say, well, he's worked five games this week, if they look out there and go, but he looks just as fresh today on Saturday as he did last Sunday when I, coaches watch tape just like we do. They know where I've been. They know where I've fished. They have Philly rep. They know your tendencies. They know you. So if anything, I try to work hard. As the season goes on, I, I try – to get not only mentally tougher, but physically, I got like I'm going to work harder tonight. And it is a dream. It's hard. If you ask any coach, any player, any official, by February, everyone is tired. But when those bright lights come on, I still get that 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 thrill. Like when you're in the tunnel and you walk out, and that that crowd is rocking and that band's rocking, and then your first boo of the night. I'm like, now I'm back in it. This is how you know. This is this is where I belong. This is my element. When the season ended this year abruptly, I was crushed. Like most officials, you know, I, it, it killed me because I, I, I love March Madness. I love the thrill of that, that tournament. And now hopefully we, we can get this under control and have an upcoming season, which we've got to get COVID under control. But, you know, things are a lot more important in basketball. But I, I am very we have a season. I can't wait to be like that. I can't wait to be booed. I can't wait to walk out and somebody screaming my name that I suck. Then I feel like I'm back home. You love the chaos, right? Love it. Love chaos. So for this next question, put your fire suit on. Um, to work uh, NCAA Division One basketball at the level you do for so long, you've had to deal with a lot of hot situations, a career of frequently working in the heat of the moment. So you're fully equipped to be able to put out emotional fires, so to speak. Let me ask you this. How has your previous career as an actual firefighter helped you become a better basketball official? First thing I would say is partnering. The one thing you ask any firefighter, medic, EMS, any one of those will tell you, you never go into a fire by yourself. There's always a partner with you. You never come out of a fire by yourself. There's always a partner with you. And that's one of the things I learned in my training was there's always a partner there. You never leave them hanging. It's, it's, that's life and death, obviously. What they, those guys do now day to day, I admire so much. Since I've been in this shit. I know it's amazing with firefighters and police officers. I know, I get it. But same with officiating. When you walk out on that floor and you've heard this since the first time you rep, the only friends you have are your partners. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's two-man JV or, or three-person, where that's the only friends you have for two hours. Maybe you, you may not like that person as much. You may not love that person. You may not have the same hobbies, things in life. But for that two hours, that's what, that's who you, that's your life and death. That's your lifeline. The same like when the fire, firefighting, 
the hoses are lifeline. You know, anytime you go into a fire and you have a hose, that's your lifeline back out to the hydrant in the trunk. Same with in officiating. Those two guys I'm with tonight, we have to get through this together. If I ref a game this year with you and say Al Batista, we work a game together in the ACC. If all chaos breaks loose, all it all hits a fan, it's going to come back on me. You know, I I, I need to build my crew up. Build my, it's the same in the firefighting. There's a captain, assistant chief, chief, whatever. They're in charge of that scene or that game. Same with officiating. Every game has a crew chief. Well, ultimately, that crew chief is in charge of the game. Everything that happens in that game, from arrival time to getting on the floor to the coaches to the table to the clock, all that is – somebody's got to be in charge. You have to be that leader. It's just like firefighting. You start out in the back of the truck. You know, you're, you're, the, you're the young guy. They send the young guys in the burning buildings. As you work up and get more experience, you, you become a captain, a lieutenant, assistant chief. You're now in charge. So same with officiating. You know, you, I look at every, every game as, you know what, maybe this is like a fire. This is what my training does. I've got two great partners. I'm not going to leave them tonight. We're going to get back on that truck and go back to the station together. No matter what happens, I'm going to make sure I protect them tonight. Just, and I know the same. They have my back. They have my life. You know, when, when I, I look out there and go, you know what, that, that's, that's my guys to me. So that's a great question. I still think about the firefighting all the time. That's awesome, and it must have been great preparation for you because there's so much of a correlation between the two vocations. Yeah, I'm sure you're absolutely. able to apply a lot, a, lot, a lot from your previous career. So Roger, you've refereed some incredible talent, many that have gone on to have long and successful NBA careers. Um, you've got to watch a couple different generations of just you know, straight college legends, right? Um, so which players or performances stand out the most, would you say, in your mind? Can you think of any notable ones? Yeah, there, there are several. Uh, funny story, I had Kevin Durant's last game. Um, he was in the NCAA tournament. He was at Texas. And I'm standing beside him. When I, I heard all the hype about him. I wasn't in the Big 12 at that time. I was very happy just to be in the NCAA tournament. But I'm standing beside Kevin Durant. And I said, uh, it was late in the game. He was going to lose. And you could tell he was upset. And I stand beside him. And I says, hey, look, you're going to have a great career, man. I'll never forget he patted me on the butt. He said, you worked hard today. You know, and, I, and that, that meant something to me. And then a quick little story last year, Zion Williams at Duke. You know, all the hype coming. Everybody knew Zion. Everybody knew all this stuff. Uh, he got injured. And then late in the year, he came back and he played the Duke Carolina game, you know, whatever. You know, in the NCAA, I mean, ACC tournament. So I had him in that game. It turned out to be an innocent classic. And late in the game, he's coming out of a timeout. And he just said, ref, where's the ball? And I said, it's right here. I said, I got something for you. I said, I give you some advice. He said, yeah, right, what? I said, if I were you, I would go the NBA route instead of officiating. I think I would try that first. But <laughs> then he, and he just started laughing. He goes, I don't know, man, maybe I should rep. I said, you do that first, then come back to see me. Right, right. These people are human. You know, you just took, you kind of talk to them. But I, I rep some incredible players. Uh, Russell Westbrook, J.J. Reddick, when he played at Duke. He's from here in Roanoke, actually, from Virginia. Okay. Uh, great shooter. Um, I remember when he got – in the NBA, he was drafted. They had a local roast for him here in Roanoke, and I went just to congratulate him. He was going to the NBA, and he actually got up at the roast and said, hey, and I see Roger Ayers over there. Uh, he never put me on the free throw line at Duke. So, hey, Roger, I made it to the NBA without you. Without you typically got just a great big laugh out of it. But uh, guys like him, uh, Carmelo Anthony was a tremendous talent. Um, it just just so many. Trey, Trey Young, just an incredible shooter. He took shots. At Oklahoma, I, I 
he'd come across half court shoot. I go, and they would go. And I remember one time I had him, he was playing Wichita State, and he took a jump shot and he missed it. And we go down the court, and the ball is that he comes to him and he says, Hey, ref, the guy, the guy clipped me, the guy landed on my foot. You know, I couldn't finish my follow through. And I'm like, Yeah, okay, yeah, whatever, yeah, okay. So at halftime, I go look at the play. He was absolutely right. So I go back out, and they come out of the huddle, start the second half, and I said, Trey, look at the play. You were right. He was dumbfounded that, first of all, a ref would go look at the play, and second of all, a ref would admit he missed the play. But what I've learned over the years, these players that you watch on TV, all the hype and all, they're just kids. They're just – that love basketball, have an unbelievable talent. But just to be around those, those players, and sometimes you watch some of the things they can do, and it's just – it's incredible. Sometimes I look back on my career – and pinch myself. Like people say, did you ref that guy? And I go, well, yeah, I did. Or I, yeah, I ref that guy. And it's just, I have nothing but fond memories of all those guys. You know, there's, there's too many to, to even talk about. I mean, just so many players that went on not only to be great basketball players, but to be great people in life. That's the other thing I, I, I like about fishing. People say, what's your favorite partner? And, and maybe I'm in the minority here, but I would rather work with a really good ref who is an incredible person off the floor then one of the best refs in the world who's a jerk off the floor someone you don't want to be around so I tell my supervisors all the time give me the give me the the really good ref who maybe is is, is trying to make it over the so-called superstar who knows everything I'm, I'm big on that I want to be surrounded by positive people good people I don't want to be surrounded by jerks and what I've learned about a lot of those players is once a game starts, they're not all bad. They're, they're actually a lot of good kids raised by great families, played with great coaches. And, and, and you mentioned earlier in this podcast about the Division One level. When you get to that level, most of the time, you don't have to deal with players. If you have a head case, you just go to the coach, coach handles it. But what I've learned all along is, is I try to pump those players up and let them know, look, I'm a human being also. I have a tough job just like you do, and I admire what you do. Just to kind of put the human element back in. Sometimes I think as officials, all we do is call fouls. And you mentioned at the very beginning, we know the rule book, we know the case book, but there's also a life book. Life. How you treat people as a human being. Just because I put a black and white shirt and a whistle doesn't mean that I know everything. I, I, you know, I make mistakes out there. I'm human. So don't go in with the attitude of I know everything. You know, just try to learn every night and be a sponge. You, know, you hear that from the first camp, be a sponge, try to pick up something. Well, I still try to do that to, to this day. So another great question. Just want to take a quick 30-second timeout from the episode and thank all the officials who recently submitted their questions to Roger to be read off on episode 100. So what you're about to see next is me going back and forth in a um, final two-minute speed round, although it lasted about 12 minutes. So just means it was six times as good as we thought it would be. And that's because of your wide range of questions that you submitted. So just wanted to say thank you and back to the podcast. So I'd like to do something new for episode 100 of the Crown Refs podcast, some, uh, something called the last two minutes. It's a speed round of questions. Recently, I put out a post um, with your picture, letting the officials in the audience know that you're going to be coming on and if they would like to ask you any questions. Got a, a lot of questions. There, there was an outpour of them. So I picked some really good ones. So I'm just going to mention the official's name and ask you the question, and we'll kind of do a, a quick back and forth. Sound good? Sure, perfect. Let's go for it. All right. So Jeremy Raynu says, how has your conditioning and workouts changed from the season to off-season? 
Uh, great question. There is no off season for me. Diet, exercise has to be a year round, uh, a year round thing. I'm going to make it. Mr. Randy Jones asks, when players or coaches are questioning a play, do you know the answer most of the time? Uh, I may think I do. First thing I do is just listen, let them vent, and then, I, then I'll give them the answer. Got it. Ernest from Chicago, what's your advice for young officials uh, moving from high school to the college level? Patience. Be very patient. It's going to take a while. It's not going to go as quick as it went in high school. My friend Scott Hamby, if you could go back and give your younger self some advice, what would that be? Use more hair gel early in my career. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, to maybe find a, a few mentors early on in my career that you know, I could kind of count on, maybe try to try to do everything myself. But also the rule book. I, I should have studied more of the rule book earlier. You know, when I was at U2, always I didn't worry about the rules so much. I was just trying to survive. But a new rep, I would say get that rule book case book because you can certainly bail out a better rep. Thomas St. John asks, what are the most effective ways to deal with a Oh, I have to change this word to deal with an upset coach. Upset coach. Um, let them, yeah, let them vent. You let them vent because remember, at the end of the day, you're, you're the authority figure. You have to make the decision, but don't always be a, a yes man. Don't always, you know, let them vent, and then you give them the answer. And then move on and put the ball back in play. And go. And let them move on. Let them get back in coach. Chase Combs from Tennessee. Do you prefer calling a day or a night game? Absolutely night game for one reason: my nap. Okay, you're a big daytime, you're a big napper. Yeah, they love a big book because I, I like to take the first flight in, uh, a light breakfast, some stretching, light exercising, a, a lunch with my crew, and then that afternoon power nap because then I got to get up shower and get this hair just right. So preferably the night game. I love it. Hannah Matherly from Mobile, Alabama. What is your personal mistake recovery strategy? Uh, I'm a, to be my toughest critic, to own it, don't run from it. But after I, I've, I've made a screw up or a misplay, I always try to leave myself with, I watch a positive play. I watch a tough play that I got right. So I don't leave, when I do my video break, I don't leave, turn the laptop off or iPad off with a negative play. I own it. Why did I miss it? But I also, before I ever cut the iPad off, I go back and look at a tough black choice player play that I got right. So I leave it with a positive instead of going to bed at night with a negative. Cesar Covina from California. How do you prepare for a big rivalry game? Um, first of all, it's excitement. I, I, I'm very, I get up for it, but I try to tell myself, don't live up to the hype. Going into those rivalry games, you know that the players are more amped up, the coaches are more amped up, there's more media scrutiny in it. I try to tell myself, just stay calm. I try to talk to myself a lot because there's more cameras or whatever. But I'm long out here. I deserve to be in this game. Now let's, let's show them why you're right. It's a big game, big-time players, big-time coaches. Let's show them we're three big-time refs tonight. Love it. Ryan Weechie from Detroit. What kind of habits do you use on the court to remain calm and focused during tense situations? Uh well, I, I do a lot of meditation early. You know, when I get to the hotel, I try to do a five or 10 minute do some meditation just to calm me down and give me a calming effect throughout the day because it is going to be chaos. And I self-talk to myself a lot during the game. I, I, I'm my toughest critic and, and I may beat myself up sometimes about a tough play, but I have to say, look, that possession's over. I've got to move on. If you continually beat yourself up about plays out there, you're going to miss the next play and the next play and the next play which is what you don't want. I talk to myself constantly about, Roger, 
you need to re-rotate more. Roger, this game's getting too physical. Roger, this coach is got Roger, you got to pump your partners up. Roger, the shot clock is messed up three times in the first half. All these things I'm trying to do is I'm talking to myself the whole It's a game within a game. My friend Fabian from Long Island, does your approach change if you are working a regular season matchup versus a playoff assignment? Absolutely not. Uh, whether it's an exhibition game or an NCAA tournament game, I, I never have an on-off switch because, like I said before, I ref like someone's watching me for the first time. If you treat every game like it's an NCAA win or, go, win or lose, go home type game or an NBA finals, if you treat every game like – because to those two teams playing – it's the biggest game in America. It's the most important game. I don't care if it's Rick Ball on Saturday morning. If they're keeping score on that scoreboard, that game means something to those players and those coaches and those fans and people follow that. So I treat every game the same. I don't change mechanics because this game's on ESPN or it's on ESPNU. Or ESPN. I, I do everything exactly the same. My run's the same. My hustle's the same. My case with coaches the same. Everything I try to – that way I don't have to turn the own off switch. Like – well, this game in this league, I'll just do it. No, I don't have to. Every game, I feel like I'm fortunate and blessed to get to work. Someone is paying me to be out here. Someone believes in me. Someone thinks I can handle the game. Well, I want to prove them right. And what's helped me continue to build my schedule and, and, and stay around as long as I have is, I, I think, is, is my work ethic. Like, I try to work hard every night. If someone ever called me and said, you didn't work hard last night, that would crush me more than saying you missed a black charge play team. Right. But, a great question. Thanks for asking that one. Anthony Hill has a curveball for you. If you could officiate another sport, what would it be? Um, probably Major League Baseball because I think those guys are so cool, so smooth. Uh, I like their style. The only problem about Major League Baseball, and I have a couple of Major League Baseball umpires that do, do that because I kid them all the time. I, I, I couldn't wear a hat because it would mess no, my hair up. I wear, wear the mask. I played the I'm not wearing a hat out there. And they said, no. well, if you're going to do baseball, you got to wear a hat. So I probably wouldn't be able to do it. So uh, maybe tennis. I could sit up in the uh, in the chair there with the umbrella and the water and just kind of not touch my hair. But that's oh. why I never call shot clock violations. You're very rare. I don't want to touch it. <laughs> that's a great point. So if, we get a game, there. Yeah, if we get a game this year, Paul, I'll just I'll blow the whistle and you, and you stop it. So. No contact, right? No, no contact. I'm not going to touch it. I'll touch it rare for you. and you're, you're, That's the first time I've touched my hair since uh, March. What if someone else touches your hair? They're ejected. Automatically ejected. <laughs> no uh, warnings. Got to go. Now, the players <laughs> give me a hard time, too. I've had them say, ref, your hair never moves. Or ref, your hair is, is perfect. And I'll say, man, I use good hair, too. And a lot of times I'll do that in captain's meeting. I'll, I'll mess with them. I'll go, all right, guys, you know it's a big game. I'm using the Paul Mitchell tonight. I'm using the big time hair gel. And it just kind of breaks the ice, but another way just to calm it down. But yeah, fans get on me all the time. But if they're on me really hard, I like touch it a little bit, just mess with them. But it's just kind of my stick now. People get know me more about my hair than my officiating. Well, your fellow official Brian O'Connell wants to know what kind of hair gel do you use? Love my man. First of all, Brian O'Connell, I think is one of the best refs in the country. Final Four ref by far. And mm-hmm. we talked all the time. I actually spoke to him earlier today, but. Uh, when I work with O'Connell, I, I definitely use the Paul Mitchell because I know it's going to be a big game. So uh, I love Brian. Yeah, you, if you could get him on one of these, you do it. He's great. Yeah, he is. He's very smooth to watch for sure. Philip Harris, have you ever had a moment when you were scared for you or your crew safety? Um, yes. 
mostly back in, in my younger days, like in, in the rec ball, the AAU, some of that stuff I dealt with kind of, I learned to ref games back then because the chaos that happens in those gyms on a Saturday, dealing with the parents on the court and the coaches on the court. But there were times, I remember a time working a rec ball game that a parent came up and put his hand in my chest and shoved me back. And I'm, I'm walking out to my car, it's dark, and I'm thinking, nobody cares about me. But the higher you go in college basketball, there's usually some security there in Division One office security. But, yeah, there have been times, you know, I've gotten hate emails. I've gotten hate phone calls. I've gotten hate texts. I had one text or one phone call one time after a game at a Division One league that the guy said, hey, you cost me tonight. I know where you live. There's a six-foot hole waiting for you. I can't. Those are scary things. Those are scary things that people are just crazy about, you know, and I just ignore them. Well, we're going to – let's keep it positive. Stuart Jones, do you see a change in behavior um, from players and coaches if no fans are in attendance? Give us your forecast on what games with no fans may look and sound like. Yeah, first of all, I think it's going to be very interesting. Uh, I think uh, coaches will be aware. I think we'll wear it because sometimes they can say things or maybe profane. If a coach is saying something to me and it's just me and him talking or he's right beside me, there's 20,000 people, no one can hear it, just – him and I, it's one thing. I think they're going to be more aware now. If they yell across the court to some profanity, you got no choice because every camera, every microphone in America picked it up. And I think it's going to be a learning process for them, just like it is for us. You know, I work with some officials who cuss back to coaches. I'm not big on using profanity with coaches. I can't do that either. I don't think it's professional, but they, they're going to have to learn. Look, I can't yell at you on the free throw line, yell at over the coach. Shut the effing up. I'm going to take care of this player. Shut the – but you're fully, you know what, you, know, you can't do that anymore because there's just too many – and the same with players. They're going to have to be more aware of when they get knocked to the floor instead of coming up using some language that maybe no one would have heard before, maybe just now all the microphones are going to be there. They're going to be picking up on that. So it's going to be a learning curve for all of us, but I think that's the way it's going to be this year. I will be shocked if there are fans in the arenas. I'll be completely shocked. Hopefully it is. I, I'm okay with that. But if not, I think I just watched the TBT tournament, and that seemed to go off pretty good without uh, without fans. The way they had the borders around the court, you know, the big curtain, so it didn't look like they were such yeah, a good. You couldn't even tell. Um, but as far as the microphones go, and the coaches, the coaches still going in the heat of the moment. Coaches still going to yell, and, and that's going to put officials, I think, more in a box because the profanity is not going to be allowed. They're not going to allow a coach to yell at you 94 feet away, dropping that bombs without addressing. Mm-hmm. No. So it's going to be a learning for all of us. I think we're all going to have to get used to it. And uh, I just hope we get to have a season and we can all get back out there and do what we love to do. I think, I think it's going to trend well for officials and improving sportsmanship. Because like you said, you can't scream across the court in it like you were doing in a loud gym. You can't yell out a profanity because now every, all the players and refs are going to hear it. So um, let's keep this moving. Scott Still from Pennsylvania. What do you look for in up-and-coming officials? Confidence. Somebody who looks the part. Somebody when I first – I can watch a guy camp, believe it or not, most veteran – I can look at a guy in the first five minutes and tell if he has it. Like we all say, the it factor. There was an article in Referee Magazine one year about the it factor. Everybody's it factor is different, but I can watch a guy early on and see if he has it. And then the other thing I look for is, is how does he communicate? Like we've spent this whole hour or so talking about communication. He may run like a deer. He may be a great-looking official, 
But when that big-time coach yells at him, he curls up like a turtle and gets in his shell, he's not going to make it. I want to see the guy who has the total package. Does he look like a rep? Is he in shape? Is he coachable? Does he listen? Does he want to get better? Does he ask for my advice? And second, importantly, how is he going to make it out here? If he's not good, if he's a jerk, he's not going to make it. As I said earlier, give me the give me the good refs that are good guys over the jerks all the time. Same with newer refs coming in. You're coming in, be extremely humble. You you may be the big dog in your high school association, but if you get hired in Division Three, you're back to being the new trip. You're the rookie. Or if you're Division Three or Division Two and you get hired in Division One league, you're back to being the rookie. Know your role, kind of is what I'm trying to say. Is learn, learn what got you there. Don't come in with all this. This great ego, you're going to be the man. No, I don't, I don't, nobody wants to work with me. Lee Osberg from Texas. How do you mentally prepare for a long stretch of games? Um, great question. Uh, when the season starts, I'm excited. I'm pumped up. I look at my calendar and go, wow, that's a, that's a long stretch there. But, wow, that, that's going to be fun. That's going to be exciting. But as I said, any ref will tell you by February, March, You've been doing this now for five months. Everyone's tired. I try after games is I try to go to my quiet place. And people say, like, after games, I don't go back to the Marriott bar and hang out. I, I like to go back to my room where it's quiet. I've been around 15, whatever thousand people yelling and screaming all night. I like to go to quiet. I like to go listen to quiet music. I like to maybe get on and, and listen to a, a speaker talk about positive thinking or positive I like very quiet time. I, I'm an introvert. People don't believe that. They think, well, wow, you've you got to be an extrovert. You're in front of these people all night. But it's a funny story. One of the first years John Fogarty had the ACC job, he got up in a clinic in front of 70 other ACC reps and says, where's Roger Ayers? And I thought, oh, this is big time. He's calling me out. He's, he's going to have me say So I stand up and he goes, hey, guys, look at Roger right now. We all know his nickname is Houdini because he's going to disappear. When this game is over, when this meeting's over, He'll be gone. And that's how I officiate. I, I work hard for those two hours. With my partner's two hours. We may do a little something after the game, but when I can get back to my hotel and it's just me, that's when I'm at my happy place. That's when I can be honest with myself, take a deep breath and calm down because I know tomorrow morning at 4 a.m. I got to get up and you're on another plane and you're all over again. So I, I, I try to get as much rest as I can. You know, I, I don't try to, you know, beat myself up too much because I know tomorrow night – now this game's behind me. Tomorrow night's game is the biggest game I'm ever going to work. And then the next day you got to get up, call, and do it again. Mm-hmm. Good question here from Adam Bergman. How do you deal differently with coaches who constantly question calls versus those that are more quiet and chill? Yeah, yeah, great question. And the way I handle that is the coach who asks the questions all the time, if they're legitimate questions, are always answering. But I always make a point to go down to that other coach. And say, Coach, anything you want to talk about? Because if, if if you look at coaches like this year when you're on the court and you see one of your partners look, talking to a coach on a timeout, you can put the money in the bank. Look down at the other end, and you're going to see the head coach or the assistant coach is watching that whole conversation. A tip I would give reps is if one of your partners is over there carrying on a five-minute conversation with a coach and the other coach is standing going, what, what's going on? I always go right to that coach. Coach, what do you want to talk about? What's, what's going on in your mind? What, he said, what's going on down there? I don't know, Coach, but I'm giving you my ear. What, what do you want me to look for right here? So there are some coaches in America who just coach. 
and I love working their games because they just let me work. There are other coaches that no matter what I do, just want to talk, just want to chirp, just want to. And something, you have to you have to lend an ear to both of them. But what I've learned over the years is don't give this guy who talks all the time all your attention. You don't. It's the same thing when you shake hands. If you go shake coaches' hands and you spend two or three minutes shaking hands on the home team, when you get to – or with the visiting team because you know them and you get to the home team and you blow by the fish handshake, somebody's already got an antenna up like, okay, Roger spent an hour shaking the visitors' team. He didn't even shake our system coaches' hands. Those are all things people look for. So, yeah, another great question. The coach – as uh, has replay made it easier or harder for officials? Uh, depending on who you ask, for me personally, I think replays made it easier. I still rep the game like we have no replay. I rep the game, and then I know all the replay triggers that I can use to go to. But I just like making a last-second shot. Anyone knows you can go to replay, but you got to make a decision. I rep it like there's no replay. And then if we need to go to replay, I as an official want to get the play right. If you at home fall or having a cold beer watching on ESPN and knowing I missed the play or missed the out of bounds in the last two minutes or missed the last second shot, everybody in America is seeing 10 different replays and I don't have replay to go fix it and go look at it, that's a long night. I would rather go over and look at it. Now, the one thing I think we do a poor job of, we spend too much time over there. I think I wouldn't, I know I heard college football was going to go to maybe a minute clock or something. You have to make a decision because. We can't continue to go over there and spend five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten minutes looking at a replay on out of bounds because it's like anything else. You the more you look at something, the more you start second guessing yourself. It's like we took a test in school. Usually, your first gut instinct, your first answer was always right, but you would erase it. You're going to go with this one, and you'd be wrong. Most more times than not, I would say in ninety percentile refs and NBA level even higher. We're pretty good at play calling and getting plays right in our gut instinct. But if you go look at a replay long enough, and I look at it and go, well, maybe 10 touched it. And then you come over and say, well, 10 touched it, but I think 50 touched it last. Well, then we have another guy coming. It takes too much time. I think we need to go make a decision and stick with it. And once we tell the coaches the decision, final, we got to play. But that replay there, I don't look at it as a crutch. I look at it as a way to get the game right, get it finished right. So when the coach goes back and looks at the replay and say, yeah, that bucket should have counted. Roger was right. The replay was right. I don't look at that as making us look bad or, you know, we're human. We, we, we make mistakes every night. And the builder go to a monitor and get the play right and go to the locker room and go, wow, guys, I'm glad we got that right. Where years ago, you couldn't. You'd go to the locker room and think, oh, the phone's not ringing. Right. I'm, I'm all for replay. Stephanie Evans from Summerfield, Oklahoma. How do you maintain your professionalism even when coaches are in your face? How do you remain calm? Um, I just, I look at them sometimes like a child venting, like putting a little, like a little kid, like uh, they, they lose their mind or whatever. And you got to be the adult. I remember when my daughter was a kid, went to Walmart one time and she wanted this baby doll and she was laying there full of crying and, and screaming and all. I was like, no, we're leaving. Let's just go. You know, you're out of control. It's like, sometimes you got to deal with coaches like you deal with your children, like your kids, like coach, really, are you, are you out of losing your mind? Coach, everybody in America is watching right now. Coach, all eyes are on you. You have a great job. You work at this great university. What, what are you doing? If officials did some of the antics that coaches did, just think back last year at games you'd see or ref in, they're running down the sidelines, ripping their jacket off. They're trying to get their tie off and it's choking them. 
if if they did that on the streets, people would be putting them on YouTube laughing at them. Going, What's this clown doing? Well, if an officials did that, they think we, we have to be the calming effect that we got to be professionals 24-7. Officials can do nothing that brings attention to themselves. Coaches can do all that stuff they want, and they go, well, he's got a tough job, or she has a tough job. Well, so there's a lot of you know men and women who officiate that have tough jobs too, but we can't do those antics. Just got to rise above it. And, and, and a lot of times I will go, when they're doing all that thing, I will go, what are you doing? Are you finished? You put a show on for everybody. You got everybody looking at me. Now you've embarrassed me, you know, and, and I put it back on them. If you're done now, I'm going to have to address this situation. I had a coach two years ago run to the center jump circle. This is an early November game. In a 50-point game, he's winning, and he's yelling at a rookie in the ACC. And I just stood there and watched him. And when he turned around, I said, I'm not even going to blow the whistle on you. You know what I have to do. I said, are you finished? Look at you. You've embarrassed yourself. You're embarrassed the university. I said, you're going to be in prison a while. That's what you want. And he goes, oh, Roger, I didn't realize I was out of here. I, didn't I said, I didn't blow the whistle. I just turned the table and said, technical foul on this point. You know, it's just it's, – it's, it, but a lot of times, if, if you'll try to bring them back down sometimes. But, yeah, you're going to deal with unprofessional coaches all the time that – all the, all the things I've used on this podcast that maybe they don't respect or don't want to listen to, then you have to do. I love some of your verbiage, especially talking about, you know, coach, coach, you're, you're embarrassing your university. You're on national TV right now. So you say these kind of things that kind of wake them up in the moment. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, because, let's face it. Some of these are multimillionaires. Say, coach, you, you don't want to do this. If I throw you out, you got to deal with the media. You're going to get suspended. Coach, what are you doing? Yeah. Get, 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 compose yourself, coach. Help me here. Try to talk them off that ledge. And sometimes if they want to go, they want to go, and then, then you have to deal with that. But a lot of times they coach, your AD is sitting at this course table. You know, your president's here. And it, it shocks them a little bit, like, okay, I'm back in the moment. Well, you're giving them great advice is what you're I'm doing. Yeah, you really are. Absolutely. Sometimes when you say something like you're embarrassing yourself, it could be come off as offensive, which it's, it's not. You're actually really trying to help them. You get, you're, you're breaking Paul, it. Down. What's up? Yeah, let me say this, Paul. I've had a lot of coaches later in games go, hey, thanks for talking off that ledge. Thanks for what you said to me. Thanks for calming me down. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks for getting me back in the box. Thanks for, I know we're going to lose a game tonight, but I won't forget how you treated me and my team. Those are all things, as I said, the next time you have them, they're coming in the game thinking, wow, this Paul guy, you can talk to him. And we lost a tough game on the road, but you know, those other two guys might be jerks. I don't know them. I don't like them. That guy right there, I can talk to him. It's, it, it, it helps. Okay, one more question from Eric Cruz, a little similar to the previous one. What is one thing you've learned from irate coaches over the years? Uh, what I've had to learn when I first started, great question, Eric, is I took it personally. I took that they were irate at me. And a lot of times, it wasn't so much me or my partners. They may have been upset at their players. They may have been upset of an official from the last game who had a tough play. Maybe they're upset at their AD. Maybe they're upset at their wife or their husband, whatever it is. I, I used to take everything personal. Every time somebody yelled at me, I took it personal. What I've had to do now is say, you know what? Just, just let it go. It's not that. Just let it go off my shoulders and listen. If I've done any, anything better the last 10 years of my career that I did the first 10, I've learned to be a, a tremendous listener. And to me, listening is a big part of communication. You know, if it's just a one-way street, that's not communication. 
if that person's talking, I'm listening, I'm thinking while he's talking and venting and maybe I rate my mind is I'm trying to use some, think of some trigger words to calm him down, you know, talk him off that ledge. Like I'll even do things. And, and these are some crazy things that I may do. If he's finally coming back down to where he's caught, I say, coach, are you finished? Yeah, Roger, I'm done. I'll go. Ferragamo's or Gucci's? Mm-hmm. What, are you, what are you wearing? And they'll go, oh, these are Gucci's. I'll say, coach, it's got to be custom-made suit, right? What, what? I say, I bet your name is in your suit, right? I say, I get mine at Steinmark. Yours are custom-made. <laughs> to try to break the ice, little things. Or, yeah. coach, you know, I mean, a lot of coaches now wear Kohans. I go, coach, love those Kohans. It's sweet. I've got that same pair. Anything I can do to, to, to break the habit. This year, just for example, uh, I worked Duke Carolina on Saturday night. The next day on Sunday, I had East Tennessee State in the Southern Conference semifinals. Their coach now is at Wake Forest. He's at Steve Forbes. He left right after a few weeks later and got the job at Wake. Lord and I know. I really didn't even know him that well. I had him a few times this year. But one of the things I said to him was his assistants were like, they were all wearing Cole Hans. And I made a joke late in the game. We're going to win. I said, Coach, you, 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 congratulations. You're going to the finals. I said, now you guys can wear Gucci's. Mm-hmm. And he made the comment, yeah, I saw what you wore when you come. You had the Gucci. I was just kind of broke the ice. So little things you can do to kind of take their mind away. Or Coach, that's a sweet time. I wish I could have a hatred for my white coat. Anything. All little tips, as we started probably an hour and a half ago, of reeling coaches in, all these things I can do to leave them with a good taste in their mouth on Roger Ayers as the official. Because they're probably not going to like you, which is fine. But if they, as I said this whole time, they respect you and trust you, it will allow you to ref their games. And even when you miss a play, if, if they buy your act and really can talk to you, you got a chance. Because officiating is extreme. It's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, and people, as I say, I'm a big admirer of a lot of people on Crown Refs. I, I listen to your podcast and some of the things those refs do, you know, the Joey Crawfords, the Scott Fosters, the Bobby Roskies. I watch those guys. They're the pros. They're the experts. They make it look so easy. Well, I steal from those guys. So that's I'm still I'm still learning myself. So these tips and things I've shared with your, your listeners today are things I'm still trying to get better. I'm still trying to learn because I, I want to go back to work next season. I want to continue to work and get better. So Anything I can get from, from Crown Refs or your podcast is tremendous value to me. I'm using it. So I'm still I'm still stealing from those veterans just like I was a rookie. Absolutely. Um, I want to take the time to really uh, say thank you. I'm very grateful for all of um, the officials in Crown Refs, you know, who've been a part of this community for, for two years now that we've had it. Thank you to everyone that has reached out. This is episode 100 took about a year and a half to get here. We've had some some great guests. I've tried to bring the world's best talent on. And um, I wanted to set up something special for episode 100. And, and Mr. Ayers, you definitely delivered. So thank you for all the wisdom. We talked about communication. We talked about coaches, players, officials. Is there anything else that you want to say to the officiating community that's listening? Yeah, I want to leave you with this. And this is what I tell all, all ref groups that I go talk to. I always leave with this small little saying that I, I still live with today. There's one person on this video here that, that hopefully will get something out of this, but the one person in officiating that's going to help you the most and hurt you the most is the person you look at in the morning in the mirror every morning. If you if you get up every morning and look in that mirror and say, what can I do today to be a better official than I was today? 
I think don't don't let your career be based on if, like I went to camps and I, I went to a camp one time put a number on my back and the supervisor said you're not going to make it you're not what I'm looking for well I went back to my my dorm room I was standing here with no air conditioning looked in the mirror and I, I could have been bitter and got ticked off and said this isn't for me I looked in the mirror and go you know what he's right I got to get better so everybody on this this crowd us if tomorrow morning look in the mirror and say what can I do to be a better rep what can I do to get to that next step this is what I want don't put your career or your future or your hopes and dreams on someone else and let them make that decision for you you make it for yourself whether that be I need to get shaped I, I got to get in the gym I got to quit going to the buffets every night um, I got to be a better rule booker I got to get in the rule book I need to read the case book I need to be listening more proud of podcast what can I do today to get better whether well, that means we're in the off season now. Maybe just get on your iPad and look at tape from last year, but be your toughest critic. But look in that mirror and say, okay, this is the person going to help me most today. And I'm going to make it inefficient because of that person I'm looking at right there. And if I don't, that's the person right there that's going to stop me. But nobody can stop me. I'm going to make it. And if Supervisor A says I'm not good enough, or I'm going to be. I'd like to leave you with that, and um, I wish you all a, a tremendous success. And uh, I think one day I'll get to work with a lot of you. And uh, all these tricks I've used, I'll stand back and watch you use them. So, thanks, thanks a lot, Harry. Appreciate it. It only took you to 100 to get to me, so <laughs> yeah. I'm, in, I'm in the top 100. I'll take it. Thanks for listening to the Crown Reps Podcast. Serve the game.